Welcome to the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy in the state of Alabama. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children rate at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for the citizens of Alabama. This podcast was brought to you by Bright Spot Ed LLC, an educational consulting company based in Alabama, providing consulting professional learning, evaluation services, and resources. Our goal is to highlight the good and replicate it across education. Check us out at brightspoted.com. I'm your host, Shelley Bell Smith. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Khalid White, author, educator, filmmaker, and advocate. He is the Chief Empowerment Officer for Black Empower, which is a multimedia company focused on changing cultural narratives and centering equity, inclusion, and social justice through books, film, fashion, and music. He also serves as a professor of ethnic studies and African-American studies at San Jose City College. He previously worked as a group supervisor at the San Mateo County Juvenile Probation Department. He received a bachelor's degree from Morehouse College in sociology and a doctorate in educational leadership and administration from UC Davis. Welcome, Khalid. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me, Shelley. And thank you to the great people of the state of Alabama and beyond for listening. Absolutely. We're excited you bring a lot to this conversation. So can you start by telling us how you became involved in education and literacy? Well, it's kind of a long story. I'm going to attempt to make it short. As far as my foray into education, I really come from a long line of educators, from my grandparents on both sides, aunts and uncles, my mother and father, you know what I mean? Like at one point or another, there have been several educators in my family from the K-12 system and even into higher ed. So we come, I come from a family of Honestly, a lot of formerly educated people, which is a blessing. And so a number of us were educated at the historically Black colleges and universities throughout the South, myself included. And so as far as my involvement in education is concerned, it's, I would like to say, genetic as part of my DNA. But as an undergraduate student at Morehouse College, I started volunteering with little kids, students that were in the third and fourth grade. My friends and I volunteered at an after-school program. So that was my earliest initial involvement in education. And I loved it. I loved working with the kids. I loved interacting with them. I loved the, the smiles and the hugs and the high fives and things like that and being able to kind of have an impact on their trajectory. And so that was my initial involvement in education was volunteer work. And then from there, because I loved it so much or I enjoyed it so much, I went on to try to pursue it professionally and have been in education since 2004 professionally. And as far as literacy is concerned, well, I'm a person that is a, an avid reader and I'm a person that loves books. And so a number of different statistics were saying or you know, have been saying the the youth are not reading at the levels that they need to be reading, just by, you know, by and large. And so my foray into literacy work was really trying to combat these negative statistics, these numbers that are dismal, and really just trying to be proactive and solutions oriented in terms of being an educator, but also being an advocate for youth and youth empowerment and literacy. And you also are a big advocate for dads being involved in this literacy. 
and we'll talk more about that. But um, this episode is going to air right before Father's Day. And so you have a lot to say about fathers. So I'm pretty excited about you sharing that. Mm -hmm. You currently work at the college level and you see a lot of the struggles that students have with college coursework especially when they are in need of remedial English and math. Can you tell us about these experiences and how that has influenced your work with families and literacy? Yeah, absolutely. So I do work at the college level and I've been at the college level since about 05, but at my current college since 2008. So, I, you know, I definitely have some skin in the game and some experience uh, over a decade. And unfortunately, working at a two-year college, a community college, or, you know, sometimes referred to as a junior college, students are supposed to graduate in two years. However, statistically, students are graduating at five, five and a half, six years in a lot of cases, and sometimes even longer than that. And, you know, a lot of things pop up and, and occur in people's lives over two years, four years, six years, 10 years, right? So one of the reasons or a couple of the reasons why it's taking students five and a half, six years to graduate from a two-year college is because they are deficient in reading and writing skills and in mathematics. And that is, that's a large part of the issue. That's not the complete ball of wax, but that's a large part of the issue. And so for myself, I don't teach in the math or the science field, so I'm not able to really affect that directly but I can affect the literacy, the reading and the writing. And so for me, again, trying to be solutions oriented, proactive, and also just continuing my love for literacy, reading and writing, it influenced me to, to begin working with families and with youth to catch them at five, six, seven, eight, as opposed to trying to rectify a situation at 17, 18, 19, 20. So I think it's Frederick Douglass that has a quote, and I'm, I'm going to probably butcher this, but it's something to the effect of it's easier to build up strong children than to repair broken men, right? So with that type of phrase in mind, the idea is easier to build up these youth with their literacy while they're young, impressionable, still learning. It's much harder to catch them when they're adults or young adults and, you know, have gone through the ups and downs of the public education system and trying to rectify it at 20, 21, 22. I would prefer, and it's much easier to catch them when they're six, seven, eight, and try to you know work on those skills there. And to that point also, the family has a big influence on exposure to literacy, exposure to resources, and also the social and emotional connection that's needed to encourage literacy and encourage youth literacy, especially like, you know, if the family can somehow express, explain, and demonstrate the importance of literacy, whether that's having books at home or whether that's your kids seeing you reading or whether that's you reading with your kids and then later having your kids read to you, all that is important in, in, in building literacy skills, confidence and self-confidence and also that social emotional connection that families that need and those bonds that families need. Because you've seen what it looks like when those things don't happen. They get to the community mm -hmm. college level and it takes them six years if they ever finish. Sure. And it's, it's a terrible waste of time and money for them to do that and not be successful. So I think absolutely, absolutely starting early is the way to go. You and I have spoken about the school to prison pipeline, and there are still a number of people who don't believe this exists. What have you seen that makes you either believe or disbelieve this idea? Well, I have seen it. I believe in it because, you know, for one, you can look at, again, the statistics. A lot of the individuals in there are functionally illiterate, and that also leads to 
certain uh, barriers to employment, certain health and social, socioeconomic barriers. There's a number of different, it's, it's not just, it's not just literacy, it's literacy that's tied to so many other health and well-being outcomes that oftentimes put people in the position where they are in prison. But again, literacy and school and grade level proficiency is tied to the school to prison pipeline. We know that statistically, if students are not reading by grade level in the third, at, at the very latest fourth grade, then they're tracked almost into a very negative sequence of outcomes that lead oftentimes to incarceration. And that is especially prevalent in Black and Latinx communities and neighborhoods poor white as well, first generation or immigrant communities as well. You know, those communities that are marginalized are, are much more prone to that school to prison pipeline experience. So again, it goes back to the family and some family dynamics is tied to that because a lot of times too, with this incarceration, there has been also, you know, the, the idea that the father or father figure a lot of times is missing from the household or is justice involved himself and that type of thing. And again, I'm sure we'll get into that later on, but to your point and to the this question. I definitely believe in a school to prison pipeline in the state of California since 1980. There have been upwards of 20 prisons built in the state of California since 1980. I want to say 22, 24, somewhere in there. At that same time, since 1980, one college, one university has been built since then. So there is a definite connection between education and incarceration, not only in California, which is a quote unquote, very liberal state, right? But still heavily involved in lockup and locking people up for profit and, you know, for other reasons. But this is something that's nationwide. This is not just specific to California. So again, back to the to the question, Shelley, I definitely believe in the idea of the school to prison pipeline because statistics prove it, numbers prove it, the exponential growth of prison and prison population in my home state of California proves it. And we could tie a lot of this back to family dynamics and education experience. And you worked with juveniles in the system at one point. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I imagine you saw that again and again. Definitely. I worked in juvenile probation and lockup facility for about seven years. And there was a definite connection between family dynamics, education, experience, and the unfortunate outcome of incarceration and recidivism as well. The return back to prison, back to incarceration, back to lockup. A lot of those youth, they might get locked up at 11, 12, and they graduate 11, 12, 13, 14 into the uh, adult system later on at 17, 18, 19. And it's sad. Very sad, but I'm a firm believer that positive experiences can kind of offset a little bit of that, some of that. That's what I want to provide is some positivity. Which is the reason we do then. You're doing this conversation right now. You've written a popular children's book series focused on creating a love of reading for the entire family. And we've talked about why it's important for students to have windows and mirrors in the literature that they're exposed to. What was your goal with this series and what kind of effect has it had? Well, there's a number of goals that I have for the Little Brother, Little Sister series. The overarching goal was to positively affect Black and Latinx communities because those are the ones that are the most impacted by the school to prison pipeline black and brown. It also was a goal of mine to have black characters or phenotypically uh, black characters to be centered in children's books so kids can see them. That's where we get this idea of the, yeah, the mirrors in the window. 
And so I wanted students of all races to be able to see Black and Afro-Latinx characters who are central, family that's central to the book, to be able to just have an experience through these books that situates them with some cultural relevancy and also for students to be able to find a love for literacy and reading by being able to see themselves and their culture reflected in these books. And so I'm proud to say and pleased to say I have seen some very positive effects of these books from white kids, Asian kids, tall kids, short kids, black kids, Latinx kids, families, white families. You know, um, I even had at one point I was doing an event at a professional soccer team locally, the Oakland Roots. And they had, at that day, they had a number of elementary schools, elementary school teachers and students. There was a white teacher that told me, thank you for putting these Black characters in these books because white kids need to see Black characters in these books. And so, you know, this was a, a, a teacher and a dad himself at a school that said, hey, my daughter needs to see these Black kids in these books. And so, Long story short, proud and pleased of the effect that it has had, and I'm looking for the effect to continue to keep growing. And that's one of the reasons why I went into writing books for kids, because I just want to see the positive impact that my words could have on a child, but also for them to be able to see themselves or even see other cultures that are typically not seen in these books reflected through the Little Brother and Little Sister series. That's a great point about it's not just for Black or Latino or children of color to see themselves, but for other cultures to see these children in this environment. So I think that that's a great goal. You've also written several books for adults. Um, one of them is a book on Black fatherhood, which was designed to counter the narrative about Black fathers being absent or uninvolved. Can you talk about this narrative and the research that shows why it's false? Yeah, I can talk about that. So my book, Black Fatherhood, Trials and Tribulations, Testimony and Triumph, was a labor of love. Just put it like that. I came across a statistic. I was reading the article and came across a statistic again. Statistics and me, somehow we, we, we have a relationship, right? As a sociologist, you know, as an as a educator, et cetera, I'm, I'm big on statistic and statistical facts because typically that's the difference between uh, true and false or the statistic. It can be statistically proven. But anyhow, I was reading an, an article and it said that the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, did a study on fathers and father engagement. And the CDC found that Black fathers, regardless of their marital status or relationship status, were the most engaged in the lives of their children. And by engaged, it meant bathing, feeding, washing, you know, just involved and engaged in the ways that fathers are, you know. And so when I read that statistic, it wasn't a huge shock to me because for myself, having grown up with my father present and with my grandfather's present and uncle's present, you know, I saw that there are Black men who are hands-on. I had coaches, too, that were hands-on with their kids. You know, I saw a lot of positive Black male role models when I reflected on that statistic. On the flip side of that, we know that there are some who aren't engaged and involved. And, you know, but it's the ones who aren't 
that kind of overshadow the ones that are. And if the CDC says statistically Black fathers are, and then I can reflect that, I can reflect kind of on my life and my development and seeing uh, there were a lot of Black men that were involved, that type of thing in my personal life. And then I started looking at my friends and saw them, uh, hey, a lot of them are hands-on dads and, you know, that type of thing, even if they didn't grow up with their own fathers. So I just wanted to kind of pay homage in a certain sense to Black fathers, but I also wanted to give the experiences of Black fathers from Black fathers themselves. So we had a number of different men and women contribute to the book and talk about their parenting and relationship scenarios, the ups and downs, the trials and tribulations, whether it is the single father. We talked a little bit about that and we got a, you know, a story about that from a father who's you know um, a single dad. We got the differences in raising your children culturally from a, a father who came up in Africa, but is raising his children in California. Uh, we have, you know, story from a father who has multiple kids by multiple women and how to juggle that and manage that. Father who was raising biracial kids, a father who took on a child that is not his biological child, a father who is an entertainer and how to balance kind of entertaining, then on the road and things like that with, with hands-on fathering. And then also fathers who themselves didn't grow up with their father or didn't grow up with a positive role model and how that impacts and affects their parenthood. So all these different kind of scenarios that fathers find themselves in, but overall the tying theme is that these men and these women are hands-on parents with their kids. And so I wanted to, again, provide a counter narrative to the stereotype out there about the missing deadbeat dad and the absent Black father, because although there are some instances of that, I think by and large that is changed and changing and a lot more, at least from doing just the, the eye test, right? Just seeing visually a lot more men, at least in my circle and, you know, kind of in my peripheral, they're being hands-on fathers. A lot of Black men are stepping up to the plate and trying to change this narrative by being involved and engaged. And so I wanted to celebrate that in addition to supporting that CDC statistic that I read. Well, statistic is one thing, but then when you start reading the stories, then that certainly gives it a lot more depth and our brains love stories. And so yeah. I think that it gives it a lot of credibility. Why was this important to you personally and kind of mentioned that you think that this perception is changing? Well, I do think the perception is changing. And to your point, you just mentioned the depth, you know, of these stories that the men shared. I also feel it's important for other, for, for men to share in this particular sense, because oftentimes as men and as Black men, we don't emote and we don't share and we don't allow ourselves to be or feel vulnerable at times, right? There's a lot of vulnerability in this book, a lot of uh, emotion, a lot of, well, hey, man, I, you know, I had some dark nights. Things are looking good now, but it ha it wasn't always all good, you know? There's a lot of up and down. And, and that's really the, the journey of parenting. And I think that the depth and the vulnerability and the emoting will help to change the perception, will help to give credibility to a person who's saying, man, I need some help. There's nothing wrong with asking for help. And so this is not a self-help book per se, but this is a book that can definitely help some people going through some challenging times as a parent, whether you're going through family court and child support court, that's in the story. Whether you're going through a hard time with your teen or your tween, which I'm in a situation like that. I have a, a 
15 and, you know, it used to be she was one way and now she wants to assert herself in different ways. So anyway, long story short, there are millions of other men going through these scenarios at the same time. Millions of other women who are going through these scenarios at the same time. If we share these stories, if we share our wisdom and our experiences, we can help the millions who are going through these same stories and help to also change this narrative and perception or misperception, the stereotype and misperception at the same time of the deadbeat, the absent, the unavailable, the uncaring, the unloving Black father, because that's just not true. Black people are a very loving and communal, inviting people, despite what mass mainstream media may say, right? We have shown that historically and contemporarily through our interactions with ourselves and, and others. And so that's part of who we are as, as a people. And we're very still very much village-oriented people. So what affects one affects all and others in our village. We are all part of a larger village. And mm-hmm. as part of being in a village and getting along with each other, it's understanding each other. And Mm -hmm. so I think that that's part of what has attracted me to your work. You're also a filmmaker. One of those films was specifically about Black fatherhood. And when I watched it and listened to the Black fathers featured, I wondered why this isn't a larger topic of discussion in our communities. Why do you think this is the case and how do we change this? Mm. That's a great question, Shelley. Um, I have a couple of different theories, one of which is it's much easier for us to talk about what's wrong, the negative, the the salacious, you know, the the, the violence. The, that stuff is we kind of gravitate a little bit more towards the negativity than the positivity or how to evoke change. Right. We unfortunately, again, kind of through through the inundation of media and social media, we focus a lot on things that are going wrong, or we focus on the high-level celebrity who seem like they have it all together. My particular work in terms of Black fatherhood, the film and the book is not about violence. It's not about shoot them up, bang, bang. It's not about disrespecting women. It's not about disrespecting ourselves. It's about a topic that, you know, fatherhood and being a parent and being responsible and that's just not sexy, you know, in, in terms of what is marketable or attractive, you know, financially, perhaps. And it doesn't have any big name celebrities. I don't have a Jay-Z in it or, or a LeBron James. You know, maybe in part two, I could get somebody like that. But for part one, it was just people who were kind of in the, you know, in the area that I could call and rely on who I knew could give me some really good wisdom. And so, you know, maybe that's some of the reasons why it's not a, a topic of discussion in terms of at a larger scale. But I do think in terms of community discussion, it's gaining momentum and has gained traction. I have had a lot of community success with the Black fatherhood work. I haven't had necessarily commercial success, not on NBC or CNN, but in a lot of the barbershops, in a lot of the you know community centers, in a lot of the school districts and colleges, we had a lot of success with the work and still continuing to do a lot of things with the work. So I think in a, in a grassroots level, that is that is changing. Those community conversations are being had. It's slower, slower moving. It's not going viral. So it may not catch the attention in the eye of the mass public. But I I do think it's changing. I do think it needs to change in terms of the willingness to have the conversations about fatherhood and parenting. But also, again, this idea of Black men sharing and emoting and being vulnerable and being able to assist one another. That's changing. It's changing slowly, but surely. I do hope that conversations like this help change that direction. I hope that it raises awareness 
for mm-hmm. people of this type. So that, you know, maybe the next time they are at the barbershop or wherever, then mm-hmm. they do think, well, this is something to talk about. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I hope that I hope that you're correct in that. And I do thank you for allowing me to talk about it on this platform, because it is the open doors to from people like yourself and others that can get this conversation started. Here we are 3000 miles away or apart, right? Two different time zones. But regardless of the things that separate us, you and I can have a conversation to open up the door on this topic and on this subject matter, because there are fathers, there are father figures, there are mothers and mother figures, aunts, grandmothers, et cetera, in Alabama right now who are going through these trials and tribulations of parenthood. Summertime. What am I going to do with my kid this summer? School is out and, you know, the pandemic is still kind of around and I want them to be safe, but I have to go to work. And so parents in Alabama are dealing with that, but so are parents in California. So are grandparents. So are godparents. And we all have the innate desire to see our children successful, not only you know academically, but socially, emotionally, and physically, and uh, mentally, spiritually, right? So we can start these conversations about, well, what are you doing? What do you suggest? Or what do you think? And platforms like this are helping to turn the wheels on those conversations and getting that um, that information out. If there is one thing that you could say to people about the role of fathers, what would it be? You heard of the term essential worker during this pandemic. Fathers are essential workers. We can't take anything away from mothers, grandmothers, aunts, the maternal figures in our lives. Where I'm not, I'm not saying that there's anything less important between the paternal and the maternal, right? We need both. We need the yin and the yang. We need fathers and father figures in the same way that we need mothers and mother figures. But the role of father is so important because you can almost tell when the when the father has been uh, deleted from the picture. You know, you can tell in the family dynamic, you may be able to tell in terms of the stress and the grief that the mother or the maternal figure feels. You can tell in a lot of cases from the kids when the father or relationship is absent or strained. And so, you know, on the flip side, I'm sure you can tell it with the mother too, but it's, it becomes almost glaring when the father and the father's role has not necessarily been solidified in the family or with the kids and that type of thing. So the role of the father as provider in a lot of cases, protector as being the first uh, man who loves a woman or showing male to female relationship love or showing male to male how to exemplify what a man is and what a man does. Those roles and those models and that relationship just can't be replicated or duplicated. I mean, it's essential. It is it's, it's as essential as your left and right arm. You need, you know, I mean, you can get away with having one arm, right? But you need two arms or you need two legs to stand on sturdily. And I'm not trying to take a shot at any, you know, person who has a one leg or one arm or in a wheelchair. That's not my intention there at all. But I'm just saying in terms of you to stand on firm, solid ground, you need both legs, both feet. So if you miss, if you are missing one, it is going to impact your life and your life outcomes, your abilities. And so that's the same idea with the father and the father being absent. So I really want to encourage fathers, father figures to, to remain present, active, accountable, and invested in the lives of your youth, the lives of your children, the lives of your nieces and nephews, those type of lives of the kids in your community, because that type of investment pays dividends long-term. When I get your children in my class, I want to be able to say, hey, 
great. You go back and tell your dad or your grandfather, your uncle, how well you are doing. They'll be proud of you. I want to be able to give that type of report. Go back and tell your mom too. Go back to your grandma, but make sure you tell dad, his son, his daughter is doing very well and tell him I sent you. It's a great message for Father's Day. Khalid, thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate what you're doing and have done for children, families, and especially fathers. Thank you, Shelly, for having me. Thank you, Sue, again, the the people of the great state of Alabama and beyond who are listening to this, the Alabama Literacy Network. I appreciate the opportunity. Happy Father's Day. And thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you. Join us again next week for the next episode of the Alabama Literacy Network podcast.